Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to bring you the fourth and final episode of this series of interviews from the MS Gym's Thrive Summit, previously available to members only. I'm even more excited that the interview is with fan favorite and former guest, registered dietitian Anna Crump. Anna, who's certified in integrative and functional medical nutrition, as juicy as her credentials sound, her previous series on MS and diets is even juicier. And I don't even think she knows this, but they still hold the record for the most downloads of any episodes in the MS Gym podcast history. She's that good, folks. She's that good. This particular Five to Thrive interview that you'll be listening to today is no less stellar and focuses on five crucial areas of importance when it comes to diet and living with MS. I had to re-listen to it today to take notes for this episode, and it sucked me right back in, all over again, hanging on every word. It's important to note that in this episode, there are several times where Anna refers to a handout that attendees of the Thrive Summit received as part of her presentation. A link to that handout will be in the episode notes, and I highly recommend you download it. It takes all of the information that you hear in the interview and dives even deeper into each topic. I've read the entire handout, and it's really a must-have. So I'm going to stop talking so you all can start listening. Here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this segment of the MS Gym Thrive Summit. Today, we're going to be discussing five ways to enhance your MS Gym experience through nutrition with Anna Crum. Anna, the creator of Restorative Nutrition, an online resource for information on nutrition, um, is certified in integrative and functional medical nutrition therapy, holds a master's certificate in dietetics, and is currently working on her second master's certificate in human nutrition and functional medicine. Some of you may remember Anna from the series of podcast episodes she did with me last summer on diet and nutrition. It was called MS Beyond the Diets, an individualized approach to healing with targeted nutrition. It just so happens that this particular series of uh, episodes, one and two were what I just mentioned. The third one was a bonus episode on HSCT. Uh, post-HSCT nutrition. It just so happens that the first episode was, to date, the most downloaded episode of the 214 episodes of the MS Gym podcast. So to say that people aren't interested in nutrition with regard to MS, yeah, they are. So that particular series took a very detailed look, very detailed look, at nutrition as it relates to MS. Today, we are gonna be drilling down on five topics and how they relate to MS and how they can help you make the best of your MS gym experience. So, Anna, thank you so much for being with us again. Thank you for having me again. I'm both flattered and nervous and no pressure, but I'm excited to be here. Wonderful. Can you uh, tell us off the top, these five topics that we're going to be talking about, what, what are those topics going to be? Well, first to lead, you know, based on everything I said on the last podcast, I am not a proponent of any one size fits all. And I like to spew biochem and a lot of biochem. And I'm going to try my hardest not to do that. But with that said, these are five very complex topics all on their own. We could be spending hours per topic. So keep that in mind that I'm doing the best to summarize the information to give you a takeaway so it can be actionable, but true results come with testing and individualization. So these are still very general guidelines, but hopefully it'll start making you question different things a little bit differently and look in different places and start connecting the dots. Um, And hopefully it'll help your recovery through the MS gym. So with that said, the five topics are going to be inflammation, how that's going to affect your joint health spasticity, sleep, macronutrients, so protein, carbohydrates, and fats, and adequate fluid. Okay, so hydration. Yeah. Awesome. More like avoiding dehydration and the pitfalls of of dehydration. Guilty, totally guilty of that. So I'm anxious to hear. So let's get started. Okay, so we're starting with inflammation and as many different foods as you could choose or aspects that cause inflammation or exacerbate inflammation. 
if I had to drill down to one general guideline that I would tell MSers, especially around exercise and around, you know, trying to stave off any relapses or healing, it's going to be the topic of sugar. Um, with that said, this is not me harping on fruit intake. All sugars are not created equal. There's many different types. There'll be more of a, like, I guess, a brief explanation of the different types of sugar breakdown and a handout. So also that we didn't mention, you're getting a handout. Um, because yeah, yeah. Um, I also yeah. have MS and I work with clients and not all of us can focus or remember everything that I have to say. So don't feel like you have to take notes. There'll be more information for you to review in a handout. Um, so the different types of sugar will break down, like I said, in the handout. This is specifically added sugar. So inflammation can cause a lot of problems, especially in your joints. It's going to present as joint stiffness, muscle pains, tension. It can also lead to weight gain, and any of that is going to impact how your joints function. So overall, it's going to impact mobility. That goes hand in hand with your ability to perform stretches and exercises to the greatest of your ability. Um, it's also going to relate and correlate directly to your chances of relapsing. So when you have too high of a sugar intake, it also increases something called CRP. Um, it's called a C-reactive protein. I'm sure a lot of you have had this measured, especially if you're having a relapse. Um, C-reactive protein is a protein that's released by the liver uh, in response to inflammation. So a lot of the times if you're in a relapse, if you go see a general doctor, not so much a neurologist, but a normal practitioner, they're gonna run this test and they're gonna be like, yes or no, are you having a relapse? And that's connected to sugar. So sugar by itself can already increase its value, which is not good, especially for MS. Also, the other takeaway is high sugar intakes are linked to blood sugar dysregulations. So if you eat something that has a high added sugar content, you don't have enough fiber, you don't have enough protein, you don't have enough fat to absorb it and kind of like slow the curve, it's a spike and it spikes your blood sugar straight up. Over time, this blood sugar dysregulation messes with your hormones like cortisol and it messes with your neurotransmitter balance, which we're gonna get into in a later topic today, but that's really big for MSR. So it's one of those things that if I had to pick one, I'm gonna pick added sugar. And added sugar, again, not your fruit content. We're talking more like the stuff that's added to foods so it can taste good. High fructose corn syrup is a real big, big one. Right. Um, this doesn't occur naturally in food and it has no nutritive value whatsoever. So all you're doing is drinking something that tastes good, that makes you addicted. It's actually hurting your health. It's not doing anything else. The fun thing that I do to kind of help gauge how much sugar I'm taking, added sugar, is like a rethink your drink exercise. And that's where, also on your handout, I'll give you some lists of, of popular drinks and how much sugar. You weigh out the amount of sugar in grams and you put it in a plastic bag and you tape it to whatever you're gonna eat and then see if it helps change the behavior. If, if I can see that I'm about to down you know, a bag with this much sugar, am I really gonna make the decision to drink it? A day, men should aim for about nine teaspoons, which is 36 grams, and women should only have six teaspoons, which is about 25 grams. So to put that in perspective, one 12 ounce soda has, I think, eight or nine, yep, eight or nine teaspoons by itself. So that one drink is consuming all, taking all of your, your allowance for sugar in a day. Wow. It can be very inflammatory. And we're talking people who do, you know, even sports drinks. Um, it's got sugar. Uh, fruit juice usually has added concentrate, added sugar, different things like that. So just be careful of what you drink. And my challenge to you is to start being very conscientious of added sugars um, and go through, especially in everything you drink. Put it, in, put it in a bag and then tape it on, on your drink and let's see how much sugar you can cut back. So it's like putting a fat picture on the refrigerator? <laughs> it, yeah, it's kind of that abrasive, but it really helps to see. You know, it's one of those things that's intangible. It's just like added sugars and you don't quite realize how at the end of the day that added up. Right. And for people with MS, that equals inflammation. That equals even more inflammation on top of an inflammatory process. It equals weight gain and hormone imbalance. Like I said, neurotransmitter imbalance. These are all really important. And they're also really important for you to be able to have that mobility and heal and get the most you can out of the stretches and exercise 
through the MS gym. Right. No sugar, people. No sugar. No added sugar, not no sugar. So I can just sit there and eat sugar out of a bowl? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, Brooke. I'm sorry. All right, all right, all right. Still doesn't count. All right. So what's next up on the list, Anna? Next up is a topic that so many MSers struggle with, and exercise plays a really big role in helping to manage this. But from the nutritional aspect, there's so much more that's not always addressed to help cover why this is happening in the first place. And that is spasticity. Uh -huh. You know, when you get the spasms or you get the rigidity and you lose mobility in a joint and you don't have control over it. And it's something that's, I mean, that's hindering your day-to-day -day life and it's definitely hindering your pain tolerance. And I can almost guarantee you, if you're working through the MS gym, it's gonna be in the way of a lot of your exercises is trying to figure out how to use whatever limb isn't working, whatever joint isn't working, and manage through the spasticity. And like I said, exercise can help from a nutritional standpoint and an immune system standpoint. There's several other aspects that, that play a key role in this. So usually I would say that at a first glance when you have a spasm, it seems unpredictable. You can't quite pinpoint what, what triggers it and what doesn't but it's actually linked to neurotransmitter balance and it's linked to your circadian rhythm. So different things that can offset your circadian rhythm, different things that imbalance your neurotransmitters, you'll see spasticity arise. So what happens in the immune system, and this again, general broad overview, um, is we have inhibitory neurotransmitters and excitatory neurotransmitters. And we want it to be like even, we want it to be a a level playing field. When it comes to MS, we see it go like this. And that usually means that there's too much excitatory action in the immune system and not enough inhibition. That makes a really big role um, for spasticity. Um, so these neurotransmitters, which let me, let me start with what neurotransmitters are, they're chemicals. It's, it's how your brain communicates. It's what your brain runs on. So these are things that enable um, muscle, muscle movement, digestion, breathing, your heartbeat. Um, it, everything your body does, it's going to do off of a neurotransmitter. Um, so that's also why this balance is really, really important. Um, serotonin is your feel-good um, they call that with mood. So if anybody is on an antidepressant, that's usually called an SSRI which is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor medication, meaning it tries to block serotonin from leaving your body so you feel better. Dopamine is like your get up and go hormone, like that's your, your motivation, um, also your pleasure. Acetylcholine is, is more with creativity. Um, that also has to do with your ability for, for motion. Um, GABA is the big one, and this one is more for your calm and focus. If you had to pick a neurotransmitter that us MSers need, and we need in, in gargantuan amounts, it's going to be GABA. That's essentially the hormone, the neurotransmitter, that balances everything and calms your nerves. So if you're thinking about a disease where your nerves are overactive and they're getting damaged and they're firing rapidly and you're spasming, you need GABA, that's likely low. And studies have shown that with MS patients, we don't usually produce enough GABA, whether that's you know um, endogenous production or whether it's we're not converting precursors to the active form of GABA, or the receptors aren't quite as sensitive to um, increase the effect of GABA. And what usually happens is when we're low in GABA, we're usually high in an excitatory transmitter, and that's glutamate. And as much as even glutamate is needed for memory and cognition, too much of it can be excitotoxic, um, and that can help lead to spasticity as well. Um, so much so that when it comes to MS, you can, they can use a serum glutamate level to diagnose a relapse. So that hyper you know, your immune system's just an overdrive, that hyperability, that state, that's very characteristic of MS. So for those of you who are working with spasticity, 
uh, there's a neurotransmitter side to this that's not gonna fully get addressed if you're just stretching. There's another way to help. Even the medications you're using to control your spasticity hint to this being the underlying issue. Baclofen is a GABA agonist. So that drug works by trying to increase GABA levels. Um, and then diazepam, that is another drug that functions by enhancing the receptor sites of GABA. So enhancing the action of GABA and making you feel better. Um, even Xanax works on GABA receptors. So a lot of the medications that you're often prescribed to deal with spasticity are trying to balance your neurotransmitters. They're trying to give you more GABA, more calm. Um, with that said, I have never, at least not to date, seen a client who I have tested their neurotransmitters when they're on these medications have adequate amount of serotonin or GABA, even on the medications. Interesting. Because there's more underlying of, of why these things aren't getting produced, why they're not getting converted. Um, one is that, like I said in the, the other podcast, the lion's share of your neurotransmitters are produced in your gut. So if you don't have gut health, this is going to be a problem. Um, genetic susceptibilities is a really big problem for this. Um, a lot of us are susceptible to having higher glutamate and low dopamine, low GABA, low serotonin when our bodies are stressed. And we have MS. So they're not often not stressed from a physiological standpoint. But so this is where this, this is the interesting take. This is what you can do about it. Food is actually a building block for neurotransmitters, and that is amino acids. Um, so each neurotransmitter is produced by its own little array of vitamins and minerals and amino acids, and it's its own cocktail. But there are certain foods that promote certain neurotransmitters. So if we're looking for serotonin, we're looking at the precursor of tryptophan, which is an amino acid. And that's going to be in bananas, pineapples, nuts, um, some fruits, eggs, cheese, even though I'm not promoting cheese, tryptophan is in cheese. Um, and then dopamine is made from tyrosine, and that's going to be more in avocado and spinach and nuts and seeds. Um, and then we have GABA. This is the one we want. This is a big yeah. one. Yeah. So that one you're going to find in whole grains. You're going to find it in soy. You're going to find it in beans. You're going to find it in nuts. Um, and you can even find it in fish. So somewhat of fermented foods. But then, again, all of this is going to go back to, okay, so what if your digestion isn't great? What if you're not breaking down these nutrients? What if you're breaking them down and then you're not fully absorbing them? What if you're not fully assimilating them? What if they're not converting? And that's a big question with MS. Ingestion is not the same as digestion or absorption or assimilation in the body. This goes back to, to testing, individualized testing. But there is one nutrient, which is a mineral, that seems to not quite get enough credit, and that's going to be magnesium. Huh. So magnesium is a precursor to a lot of your neurotransmitters. Um, and if you are magnesium deficient, you can see spasms, you can see muscle cramps, you can see tension and pain um, and twitches and even tremors and at, at its worst, seizures. So it's very connected to nerve function and over half of Americans aren't eating a diet that's sufficient in magnesium to begin with. So this is, this is where my, your takeaway is gonna come, is gonna be through magnesium. With that said, also summarizing a bunch of different types of magnesium. Not all magnesiums are the same. You have oxide and citrate and taurate and orate and malate and it's a lot of magnesium. Each one has a different function. Each one helps a different thing. The one that seems to help tremendously with spasticity is called magnesium glycinate. And that is because it is a precursor for GABA. L-glycine is a tiny little molecule that attaches to magnesium and in and of itself is an amino acid, but it works as a, as a neurotransmitter in the central nervous system. And it helps you, it's an inhibiting neurotransmitter function and it helps you calm down. And this serves as a precursor to GABA as well. So in this whole, how do we know if we're digesting anything? I kind of skip through all of this. Um, 
And I recommend there's a, a liquid, a liquid form of magnesium glycinate because it's more bioavailable. It's easier for you to take. We're not worried about digesting a capsule or things speeding that digestion through too quickly. With that said, there are medications, especially blood pressure medication, medications or any um, biphosphonates. So if you're taking anything for osteoporosis to help your bones, this can interfere with. So when I give this recommendation on your form, there's going to be some caveats. There's going to be if you're on this medication, don't do it. And I'll give you some guidelines for choosing an amount. But it's best if you could take this probably 20 to 30 minutes before bed. GAB is also a neurotransmitter that helps you sleep, which moves into the next topic. And that's going to be sleep. Oh, please help me get more sleep. Well, the worst part is if you have spasticity, that's usually what's keeping you awake. Uh, or restless leg syndrome or stuff like that. I, so, I do have spasticity, but it's not active. It's just kind of in a lockdown, usually. Uh, I would say mine's more of a tightening. It's spasticity, but it's it's not, to the best of my knowledge, it's not being inflamed. I just can't sleep on them. <laughs> <laughs> but please enlighten us. I'm sorry, I digress. <laughs> that That is the thing. My my uh, my form of spasticity is is much more like rigidity as well, and so when yes. I did PT and stuff for that, it it was I felt like I was going to tear my muscle, and sometimes I did end up in the hospital. You go to turn a doorknob, and it's just so rigid that yes. mine was my shoulder. That you know your shoulder just it was. Yeah, I understand the pains that come with spasticity and the rigidity. So this this is why I'm trying to come in and give you some advice and maybe something that'll help calm it down so you can successfully stretch it so you don't atrophy. Awesome. So back to sleep. And even if you have spasticity as an issue, you need sleep. Quite honestly, with MS, none, eight hours is not even physiologically what the body needs. You probably more, need more like nine or 10. Um, and my number one phrase for sleep is if you're not sleeping, all bets are off. All bets are off. You need sleep and it is that imperative. You need sleep for healing. So many biological processes are done in the body when you're asleep. And that's going to be from getting rid of toxic waste to nerve cell communication to, to brain function to hormone synthesis. It's going to make and release hormones like growth hormones. Um, you're looking at mood and cognition, immunity. So much is dependent on your your ability to sleep. And I'm not talking that sleep where you're sleeping with one eye open. Yeah. Wake up with every movement and every sound. I'm talking sound sleep. Yeah. Um, obviously, I don't have to preach the choir on this one. We all struggle with sleep. Um, out of any of the other chronic conditions, MS seems to have the most abnormalities in sleep simply because of the pathogenesis and etiology of MS. And then on top of the symptoms not causing sleep and we are insomniacs um, unless we're on, on sleep medications. Yeah. But again, like I said before, some of these sleep medications, Ambien and Xanax or anything that helps calm you down to go to sleep, GABA. So we're going to go back to, to neurotransmitters. Um, but the prevalence for sleep disorders with MS is up to about 65% of us. So this is going to be an issue. Also, if you want to repair your muscles, repair your body from, from your workout, you need to sleep. Um, there's going to be more on what foods you need as well, but you need to be able to sleep. So then it gets even more cyclical because there's a significant correlation between inflammation and oxidative stress and sleep disruption. So the more inflammation that you have, the less you're going to sleep. But the more you need to sleep because the more you need to heal the inflammation. So we get stuck in this cycle. And this is gonna go back to, to your neurotransmitter balance. You need serotonin and you need GABA. If you're lacking in any of these, you're gonna have either or both um, trouble falling asleep and or staying asleep. So that's why the magnesium glycinate supplement actually gets to double as both recommendations. This can help you sleep because it is a precursor to GABA. Um, and on this part of the document, I'm gonna say what it, may or may not interact with when it comes to common sleep medications because what we don't want to do is make your sleep medication work a little bit too much. So there'll be instructions on when to take it, how far away from medications and or and maybe to replace it. Not to no longer have to use it. That is the goal, but magnesium glycinate by itself is not usually the it's not the big gun. 
it's a general recommendation that can make a lot of good. Um, I've had several um, MS patients who have spasticity and I introduce magnesium glycinate, even though they're like, I'm taking magnesium, I'm taking magnesium. Well, they're not taking glycinate, they're taking oxide or um, malate or citrate and it's not doing enough and we bring in glycinate and they're like, it's a miracle worker, which is phenomenal. But also over, over time, you'll see them, it gets less effective. But this is essentially how I, I try to make you aware of your own body. So when it, if you get a huge benefit from magnesium glycinate and it makes a difference, that's going to be a telltale sign that something's off with your neurotransmitters. Like then it would be another phase of let's actually look at micronutrients that are needed for neurotransmitter production. Let's look at things like protein. Let's look at different things and see why. Look at genetics, test the neurotransmitters, and then we come up with the big guys. So, yes, if you really want to improve sleep at a core level, you have to start addressing everything that impacts the neurotransmitter balance. And it's not an easy or short process. But hopefully, in the meantime, magnesium glycinate will help some of you guys calm your systems a little, get a little bit more sleep, deal with spasticity a little less, and get even more, you know, progress through what you're doing. Healing. Yeah. Sleeping equals healing. Yes. That's the overall goal. But we're also very different. Right. Now, where would somebody, you know, you say about GABA, you say about magnesium glycinate, glycinate. Can you just run out and buy that? Or should this all begin with getting blood work done? and then getting it either prescribed or a recommendation from a doctor that you can go to a pharmacy, you know, buy it over the counter. Magnesium glycinate, without calling out every doctor because I don't know what they do or don't know, I just know in my experience, your regular physicians are not trained in nutrition. That's not their, their main pathway. That's not what they've been taught. Also, it's not prescription. So it is over the counter, and it's going to be another whole long talk that we're going to need to do on not okay. all supplements. I, I did. I just, you know, I wanted to, because I know, because yep. I'm sitting here thinking, can I get that at Walmart? Should I go to CVS? You know, where do I start? Can I just grab anything? Do I, you know? No, no, not all supplements are created equal. So I will, on your handout, you are going to have a couple product recommendations. With that said, I make nothing off of supplements. I like to always tell my clients that I'm not in for supplement sales. I'm just in for trying to help get you results. So I'm not necessarily endorsing a product, but I do have favorite brands that I know are top line. I know what's included in the supplement and I know the testing and the quality of the supplements because there are supplements that are not regulated. And you might not be getting everything you think you're getting in that product because they aren't mandated to be regulated. So again, it's awesome. a, longer, a much longer need for elaboration on supplements. But in this case, I'm going to, I'm going to steer you in the right direction. Awesome. Sorry for the sidetrack there. <laughs> no, it's needed. You can move on to the next topic. <laughs> to tie into the previous topic, another way that you can help balance your neurotransmitters and sleep is your blood sugar control. And that was one of the things we mentioned with sugar. Yeah. So eating things like, you know, drinking things, excuse me, Coke and, and juice or lattes, or it's going to spike your blood sugar and then it's going to crash. So this is the same with um, carbohydrates. So certain carbohydrates that are simple, they do the same thing. And that turns into glucose. The biggest thing for carbohydrates is don't skip carbs. <laughs> They're the fuel for your body. They're the fuel for your muscles. The more you're going to work out, the more you're going to do, the more carbohydrates it needs. The key is to choose the right carbohydrates. And like I said, the simple ones are gonna spike your blood sugar and there are complex carbohydrates that give you more of that plateau of energy and it lasts a little bit longer. So if you had a spike in your blood sugar, likely you're gonna feel that, that crash 30 to 60 minutes later and that's gonna be where you're gonna have more anxiety, more fatigue, and loss of focus. It doesn't help you in the long term. But Carbs are essential. They're energy. That is your body's energy source. Everything your body does, it requires fuel, just like a car. So we're talking every function, especially muscular. So when you work out, your body 
needs glucose. Um, it enters your muscles. It, you know, it fuels your muscles and that's how you're able to fully maximize what you get out of exercise is glucose. And when um, you say carbs, you mean good carbs. I mean good carbs, but that's needed. So these low carb diets, I'm actually also not a huge proponent of either. Um, I think they, in some instances, they are needed. This is where it goes back to everybody is not the same. Um, but overall, carbs are needed for, for energy and fuel and certain types of carbohydrates or even, like I said, they're precursors to things like GABA that you need. And I think it's just more of an availability, lack of information, I guess, so to say, of information of what's good carbs and what's bad carbs and why do you need it and why not. Um, in some cases, especially with autoimmune disease like MS, carbohydrates can be fermentable in the gut and they can cause you GI distress, but that is significant in the fact that that's underlying that there's another GI issue, like a bacterial overgrowth um, or infection in the gut. It doesn't mean that carbs are bad. It means you're symptomatic because something's not functioning quite right in the GI side of things. So I think on that level, carbs can get villainized. Um, same with, you know, gaining weight. Everybody does low carb to lose weight. And while you do initially lose weight, how that changes the neurology is not always healthy because this is your number one preferred fuel source. So if you're switching to fat metabolism, you know, what else? What is that doing to what does your neurotransmitter balance look like? What does your blood sugar control look like? What do other things look like? So if we are doing something like a low carb diet, there's so much more to it that needs to be factored in. And that's when I think you should 100% be working with someone to help look at any of the potential negative side effects of cutting out carbohydrates from your diet. So if I had to give you a general recommendation, I'm going to tell you not to skip the carbs. And I'm going to tell you to eat carbs before you work out. Um, about an hour, at least an hour before, but it can range anywhere from an hour to three hours before you exercise because you need that fuel source. So the simple carbohydrates, like I said, they're sugars, they're going to spike, they're going to come down. The complex carbohydrates are made up of longer chains and it takes a lot longer to break them up um, and to digest. So, and they're usually higher in fiber. So that's when you see this curve and not this spike. And they're um, the ones that we want to have before we exercise. Yes. Okay. Because it'll give you energy longer. Okay. So that spike, you only get energy, I guess, you know, in, in the spike, in that, in that peak where your blood sugar is the highest, where, you know, the complex carbohydrates kind of taper it. So you can keep more energy longer. You can fuel your, your muscles even longer. Um, and so simple carbohydrates, again, this whole thing is going to be villainizing added sugar. <laughs> You're looking at candy and sugary drinks and table sugar and fruit concentration. Be careful with smoothies, guys. Too much fruit is going to do the same thing. We need some vegetables in there. We need some fiber in there. Baked goods, even some of the cereals. Um, complex carbohydrates are where you still have the, the bran and the germ on the, on the grain. And they're more nutritious, that even that provides more antioxidants. Brown rice, oats, quinoa, these are things that are complex that help keep you more energized for longer. With that said, not all complex carbohydrates are created the same. There are then refined complex carbohydrates, and those are things we also want to limit. Refined carbohydrates, instead of brown rice, it's going to be white rice. Um, right. Instead of whole grain bread, it's going to be white bread. Um, that's your flours. Or These even are when you say I'm buying wheat bread, there's a big difference between wheat bread and whole grain wheat bread, correct? Yes. Okay. Which talking about wheat and gluten, we're not going to discuss this go around, but I would prefer choosing whole food sources. So as close as how you would find things, the more processing, the further away you get from it being a natural whole food. And bread is about as far as you can go. Um, so it would be making, even attempting to make your own. Um, I, do, I do my own recipes, I have to admit for that one. And sometimes there's no substitution. So I have to say I use coconut flour to make tortillas. Yeah. But overall, you know, the further we can, you know, the closest we can stay to how it's actually found in nature. So stick with your rices, stick with your grains, stick with your quinoa versus your you know, convenient, here's a sandwich. Um, 
the better it is for you. Yeah. Refining grains takes away, don't quote me on numbers, I think about 90% of the antioxidant capability as well. Wow. In grains. So if you are going to choose something like a bread, white is not the way to go. White rice is not the way to go. And this is the part where I kind of, this is why I can't say, you know, in good conscience for everybody to cut out grains because increasing whole grain consumption decreases several um, systemic inflammatory markers. One of those is your CRP. So you know how the simple sugars spikes it and it can raise your CRP levels. A C-reactive protein, it's reactive inflammation. You'll see it high when you're having an exacerbation or a flare-up or a relapse. Whole grains help plateau that. It helps actually pull that down. It decreases inflammation in your body. So knowing the right choices of what to make for carbohydrates is going to be protective. It's not going to be inflammatory. Eating the wrong carbohydrates or eating no carbohydrates can be more inflammatory. Again, not one size fits all. There's going to be a lot more to this. But overall, this is why I like to include whole grains. The other thing to take into account, which I'll give you a little bit more information about this in your handout so we don't spend too much time talking about it now, is the glycemic index of your carbohydrates matters. And the glycemic index is how that carbohydrate affects your blood sugar. So the higher the glycemic index, the quicker and the higher it spikes your blood sugar. So the lower glycemic index carbs, the lower and slower it spikes your blood sugar and the less likely it is to lead to blood sugar dysregulation, which again, that's going to tie back to GABA, um, your neurotransmitters, and that also decreases other pro-inflammatory markers too. Interleukin-6, TNF-alpha, things that have been, those are pro-inflammatory cytokines, so they're, these are things we don't want that your body produces because it's inflamed, and certain whole grains help decrease that, so it helps fight inflammation on that front. So again, it's not a recommendation, at least on my end, to tell anybody with MS to, anybody who's exercising, let alone anyone with MS, to cut out grains. So on your handout, I'm going to give you a little bit more information, point you in the right direction of, of what to choose. Awesome. I know there's a lot more detailed information. There's if, a ton. If somebody is, is craving more, I highly recommend you go to the MS Gym podcast and look at Anna's free episodes. At least, at the very least, if you've not had HSDT or not interested in it, at least listen to episode in one, one and two. Because I'm recognizing certain things that you're discussing right now, and I know there's a lot more to it. It's just, it would take, we, we'd be sitting here all day. So I, I do recommend they listen to that. But, I, I do too, but um, I will and say- that is not a, pl- a shameless plug. I really, <laughs> I know just from listening, because it's something you said, I remembered something about comparing it to a uh, cracked sidewalk. So you've got a leaky sidewalk. <laughs> you got it, yeah. Yeah. So they'll have to listen to the episode to hear about the leaky sidewalk. <laughs> but do keep in mind too, that as, as detailed as that gets, we're just getting started. There's so much more. So I, I'm excited to start getting to pointing everybody in the right direction, start looking, questioning things differently, but we have to lay a foundation before we get into the really complex topics. And yep. I'm trying to to choose to the best of my ability how to help get you started and, and the, the different concepts of where we start. So this is still this is still a jump off platform, but we'll get there. 101. Yeah, this is still we're still on 101. Um So macronutrients, in addition to carbohydrates, you need protein. Simply put, protein is one of the main nutrients that everyone needs to heal. So to heal internal damage, external damage for your muscles, um, at a cellular level, it's used for everything. I mean, we're talking DNA synthesis, DNA instruction, DNA programming. Um, I mean, it repairs your essential function of of life. So that's how needed protein is. so obviously, if it's, if it's going to keep you alive, it's going to be needed even more so when you're using your muscles. So protein is going to be needed in exercise because when you exercise, you're tearing the fibers of your muscles and those need to be repaired. And that's what protein does. So low protein diets actually suppress your immune system and they, they hinder and inhibit some of the healing that is needed. And if we look at a condition like MS, 
What do we need most? We need healing. There's so much damage. And this is where I'm going to get into nothing's created equal. Um, not all protein is created equal. You have complete proteins and incomplete proteins. Complete proteins have nine essential amino acids. Um, remember how I was saying amino acid is going to be one of those cocktail precursors for your neurotransmitters. Neurotransmitters are protein derived. So if we're looking for trying to establish neurotransmitter balance, we need protein. There's no if and buts about it. Incomplete protein sources don't have all of the nine. They have a combination and each different source has a different combination, but they don't equal all nine of those essential amino acids to be considered a complete protein. Complete proteins are your animal sources of proteins and your incomplete protein sources are your grains and nuts and legumes and seeds and you know soy and tofu but they're not complete. And for this very reason, I do not recommend for MS a vegan or vegetarian approach. For some people, it can be beneficial, but you really have to work so much harder um, because different combinations of different beans and different grains, I mean, you have to pick and choose what amino acid profile, and it's kind of like, you know, Legos. You're trying to make it a complete protein. And then this goes back to this whole we don't usually have a functioning GI tract. Um, and that goes into an entirely different lecture of how your, you know, your GI forms the enteric nervous system and how it programs your central nervous system. But when it comes to MS, I don't like to recommend vegan and vegetarian because these foods, even if you're healthy, they're harder to break down. So it's harder for you to get your protein out of a plant source than it is an animal source. With that said, um, if somebody is going to be vegan or vegetarian, I would, this is the only time you'll hear me recommend it, but I would recommend a protein powder. And again, this goes into this whole, how, how do you choose a protein powder? Which ones are best? Which ones are bioavailable? Which ones aren't just full of a bunch of stuff that are bad for you? I'll give you a, a couple pointers, but if you are vegan or vegetarian, I'm not convinced you have enough protein Testing is really good for this, looking at your albumin, looking at protein levels, um, somebody looking at your neurotransmitter uh, profile. But I would recommend, especially if you're exercising, adding in a protein powder because they did the math for you. The good ones do the math for you and it's a complete protein. So protein and carbohydrates, when you're exercising, it's at every meal because also protein adds a buffer. So it kind of adds a weight to your carbohydrate. So instead of it going straight up, it's, it's pulled down and it doesn't spike your blood sugars quite as high. And it's absolutely essential. The other huge factor behind not recommending the vegetarian approach, at least solely, is uh, vitamin B12. Uh, vitamin B12 is not found naturally in plants. And B12 is essential for neurological function. So a deficiency of B12, you're going to be sure to feel fatigue. Also, a lack of B12 can damage your myelin sheath. So B12 and how your nerves work go hand in hand. So even if you are vegan or vegetarian, making sure your B12 levels are adequate. So adding in a B12 supplement is going to be vital because we also need this. And to date, I still have not worked with an MS client that doesn't have some sort of, sort of genetic susceptibility to how we produce, absorb, utilize, assimilate B12. Um, we usually are very unlucky <laughs> um, in, this, in this category from a genetic susceptibility standpoint too, which also can lead to why fatigue seems to be this all-encompassing thing from so many approaches, from immune function to neurotransmitters to lack of certain nutrients like B12. And again, not enough protein is gonna cause you massive fatigue and not healing. So especially if you guys are wanting results out of what you're doing through the MS gym and exercising, protein is gonna be critical. And I will give you um, more instructions about timing. So like what, how much protein per day, this is different for everyone. So it's gonna be a ballpark amount, just the general range. But I believe that a guideline for you to shoot to shoot for, to aim for, um, and to be conscious of is going to help you more than just to tell you to get enough protein and you have absolutely no idea 
what that looks like. So in the handout, I'll give you some sources. I'll give you the amounts of proteins and a guideline of how many grams per day. And this is going to be really big. This is another one that I want you to challenge. I want to challenge you to start weighing out and seeing how much you're eating compared to this general guideline of how much you need because your body needs it. Your neurotransmitters need it. Your healing needs it. Your immune system needs it. It's essential. Interesting. All right. So the other macronutrient that we're missing is fat. Um, fat's very controversial with MS. Too much fat is inflammatory, but not enough fat. And I mean, your brain is 60% fat. Your myelin sheath is a very high protein to lipid ratio. So over 70% of it in dry weight is fat. So fat is going to be very, very essential. And I think fat gets villainized more along the lines of not, again, not quite being able to identify which fat sources are good and which fat sources are actually beneficial and protective. If your myelin sheath is made of fat, then certain fats are actually protective for your nerves because that's what insulates your nerves. And again, 60% of your brain is fat. So you need that. Your, your myelin, everything that protects your brain function and your nerve function is fat-based. And that's where I have um, some controversy with low-fat diets. Not all fats are created equal. Um, saturated fat is, is pretty readily and strongly villainized, which is why um, you see the immersion of a lot of these uh, vegetarian or vegan diet approaches um, arise because lower fat, less inflammation. But it actually is more... It's more intrinsic than that, and it has to do with, you know, what were you switching fat out for, um, and what types of fat were you switching for. So I am not a proponent of a low-fat diet. Um, also, when you exercise, uh, fat is one of those things that supplies energy to your muscles, as well as glucose, and it, it's it's needed. I think not eating enough fat actually puts your body in more of a vulnerable state for nerve damage, but it goes into the types. And this is gonna be a huge topic that I will be addressing at, you know, through a later information post or, or something. I don't know what we're gonna do, but this is gonna okay. be addressed later in, in much more depth because it's such a huge category all on its own, breaking down, you know, fatty acids. But essential fatty acid balance is really, really, key with MS because usually we have too much of what we call this um, imbalance of bad fats to good fats and too much bad fats are extremely inflammatory. So we need to increase what we call an omega-3. We need to increase your omega-3 intake to equal or to at least balance your omega-6 and the your standard Western American diet's got way too much omega-6 and not enough omega-3. And if we increase omega-3, then you'll actually see the reduction of other inflammatory markers. So that's going to be looking at interleukin-18 and again, your CRP, so C-reactive protein. So if that's not being, that's not increasing, your body's not releasing that protein in response to inflammation, it's decreasing, which meaning your body's like there's less and less inflammation. So some fats are actually very beneficial. And this is going to be achieved through consumption of grass-fed proteins, like your better protein sources, it goes hand in hand with your protein category. Too much um, unhealthy meat choices can be high in saturated fat and, and certain types of other fatty acids that are gonna be inflammatory. So grass-fed, wild-caught proteins, it can be, um, the biggest thing is gonna be your wild fatty fish. Um, for those of you who don't like fish, I'm really going to challenge you to try because things like salmon, wild caught, not farm raised, are very, very beneficial for this omega-3. And this is another takeaway where I'm going to say, if you're not eating fish, you know, two, three times a week, I would go ahead and recommend a fish oil supplement because it is so rich in omega-3 and the omega-3 is needed. Um, and if you aren't comfortable with increasing the amount of fat or knowing how much fat and because you've read all of the studies that say saturated fat is bad um i'm going to challenge you to start looking that at that a little bit differently but in the meantime taking something like a fish oil is going to help increase that omega-3 and this essential fatty acid balance is really vital for ms um, a lot of us struggle with it and this goes back to 
you know, the etiology and what's behind the disease process to begin with. And a lot of us have susceptibilities on the genetic level that we don't handle fats quite like we should. Or if we have, again, any type of GI distress or upset, then how well are we breaking down fat? What is the function of the liver? There's a lot that goes behind this. So this is a big topic. In the meantime, increasing your omega-3s is the one takeaway I'm going to give to you on this front. Not all fats are bad. So what are some examples of bad fat? Don't eat this kind of fat. Um, well, triglycerides is not so great either. Um, so bad fats are like your, your trans fats, so fried foods. Um, so anything, you get your french fries and your donuts, anything that's deep fried, um, your vegetable shortenings, um, you're going to find them in your baked goods, you're going to find them in margarine and your processed snack foods. Uh, certain saturated fats are going to be not so great. So you choose leaner cuts of, of meat and beef versus, you know, dark meat like chicken. Right. Choose white, so leaner cuts of meat. Margarine, like I said, shortening. Right. Um, for pork, these are, these are higher in fat content, so knowing how to distinguish and choose through that. What about butter? Just butter. Butter. Butter is a bad fat. Okay. But with that said, I think there's controversy behind that to be I know. I know. That's 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 why I asked. Because <laughs> yeah, there's controversy behind that because again, like grass fed and all of that stuff. Right. What's the health of where you're getting the butter from? There's so many factors that go right. into that one. Right. But no, so good fats are going to be your monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fat. So avocados, that's your olive oil. More of that Mediterranean diet approach to fats are usually where you're going to find the healthy fats. In your handout, you're going to have more information, a little bit more things to point you in that right direction. You need carbs because you need to fuel your muscles and you need to fuel your body and you need to balance your neurotransmitters and that helps. You need protein. How else are you going to build and repair muscles, especially if we're suffering with things like spasticity and we risk atrophying muscles. Um, and not all fat is bad. Some of it's protective. Some of it's going to protect your nerves. The general distribution for macronutrient breakdown is from a 2000 calorie diet is 50% of calories from carbohydrates, um, 30% from protein and about 20% from fat. That's going to be on a sheet to show you how that breakdown looks like, but that's a general recommendation. Again, no one size fits all but it's a good goal to at least shoot for and compare where you're at. So it gives you a starting point. All of your macronutrients, um, we're moving into the final topic, which is gonna be your hydration, um, which again is just as important. Good hydration means you're getting the right amount of water into your body, um, especially with exercise. It's gonna regulate your body temperature and it's even gonna lubricate your joints. So if we, if we look at everything water does, it's gonna flush out toxins. It's gonna to help um, eliminate some of the stuff that's causing you inflammation. It's gonna transport the nutrients into the cell. So that goes back to utilizing things like magnesium or other nutrients. And it's also gonna help with muscle soreness and tension. So if you are not hydrated, you cannot perform to the best of your ability. That's kind of the key. Poor hydration equals poor performance. Um, and I know a lot of us with motility issues seem to like to not have water um, because it seems to exacerbate the issue, but actually yeah. that's the reverse of what's really going on. It's making it worse. So finding that, that ground of how much fluid your body needs and then respecting that is actually going to also help on the motility front. Long-term dehydration is going to lead to headache, back pain, depression, obesity, digestive disorders, I mean, possibly even kidney, you know, problems or heart disease. Long-term dehydration is not good. And even in the short term, um, not even thinking long-term, as your fluid is low on a day-to-day -day basis, as it's dropping lower than what you need, you're going to feel it. And it's another one of these things that add to why you're fatigued. Once you start dropping below the fluid levels, what you need, fatigue is going to be the first thing to come. It's going to be followed by muscle cramps. The last thing you need, especially if you're suffering from spasticity, right. is cramping in a muscle that's already causing you problems. So then, you know, obviously constipation, dry skin, dizziness, 
um, cognition, things like that will happen when you are dehydrated. But for MS in particular, it's going to be really, really important, like I said, for help, helping you get better control over your bowel and bladder, um, whether you have retention or incontinence, either way, it's needed. And it's also going to help with cognitive impairment because, again, the symptom of not having enough water is going to lead to that um, impaired cognition. So it's, it's really important from, from every front. It's also, if we go back to thinking of electrolyte balance, so sodium and chloride and potassium, they are the reason why your organs um, function. Your nervous system cannot function without proper electrolyte balance, and that goes back to nerve damage as well. This is readily viewable in your lab work, um, a regular CBC and CMP for electrolytes, you know, your sodium, potassium, your chloride, um, it shows up in something called BUN. Um, it shows up in, um, which is blood urea, nitrogen, and then it shows up in bicarbonate and creatinine that evaluate your kidney function. But I can't tell you the number of times that I have clients who have motility issues, and when I ask them if they're drinking enough water, they're not, or they think they are, and it re reflecting on the lab work is or not getting enough, whether right. it's because they're drinking things that are sugary, which aren't really helping your hydration status, or because it scares them with, you know, if I drink this amount of water, then I'm going right. to have a problem. If I, you right. know, I need to run to the bathroom. I'm going um, to run to the bathroom. Yeah. I struggle with water just because there's no taste to it. I struggle and I've always struggled with water. I just recently, I'm not drinking anything else but water. I'm getting used to it but I don't enjoy it. Like I don't enjoy it, but I, I want to get to the point every, literally every time I drink water, I try to think happy thoughts. I know that, that sounds so lame, but I, I try to think of positive things and all the positive things that it's doing for me because well, that's all I've got. Right. Like that's all you're, I've got. You're doing what I'm going to challenge everybody else to do because okay. I'm wanting people to cut out all the added sugar. So I'm going to challenge people just to go to drinking water with that said you're gonna you in particular are gonna like what's in the handout because the handout is gonna be different ways because i'm like you i actually don't like water yeah um, admittedly speaking this is flavored um oh. but i'm gonna give you ways that you can infuse with fruit and herbs yeah because it also is going to add some phyto phytochemical antioxidant benefit to it cool. how you can flavor up the water with, you know, to make it a little bit more interesting and make it not so mundane. I do drink lemon water, one glass of lemon water first thing in the morning. I don't put honey in it, um, but I want to try that. Is that something I could try? What, honey and water? Honey with lemon, lemon and water, just a sweet. Lemon? Mm -hmm. Lemon and water is also very helpful. Um, it's something that I do I actually cut lemon slices and I put it in a small little mug with water first thing in the morning. That um, seems to just help energize. Um, it helps your liver. It helps everything just kind of like get going. But the takeaway is going to be you need to get enough water. So how do you do that? How much do you need? The rule of thumb is going to be, I mean, what is it? Eight ounces, you know, eight ounces, eight times a day. So the general rule of thumb, they tell you 64 ounces. But the other thing that you can do, again, that makes it a little bit more based on you is you can divide your weight in half. And that equals- say, What if you're a small person? <laughs> and that equals about the total amount of ounces you need. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to challenge people to limit and avoid caffeine um, and alcohol. And yeah. they both increase dehydration um, because they're both stimulants and uh, they actually increase your dehydration. They don't help your hydration, um, even though we all affect have... your sleep, right? Do it. They might interrupt your sleep as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, and sports drinks. Um, I'm not a huge fan. They give you your carbohydrates, but that's another one. If you're drinking it, watch your added sugar content. Um, and drinks. yep. Yeah. So like Gatorade. And with that said, even though I want you to watch your added sugars, it doesn't mean I want you to like go over on the other end and have a whole bunch of aspartame or, you know, artificial yeah. sweeteners and yeah. drinks. The, the challenge is going to be just drink water. And I'm going to give you some tips on 
or teas. I will give you some tea options too, because those are helpful with polyphenols and antioxidants. But limiting, again, limiting the sugar, limiting caffeine, limiting alcohol, limiting even carbonated beverages, these are problematic because they they tend to, you know, they cause bloat, they cause gas and, and bloating and distension. And it gives you this not real, but still there, feeling of fullness. And so you don't drink as much as you would have needed to if it wasn't carbonated. So that's going to be the challenge, but I'm glad you said you don't like anything but flavored water because that... I think that's something we all struggle with. I'm, I'm definitely in that ballpark, but there are some things that I like to do that help and that keep it switched up to keep it a little bit more lively and that, that can taste really good. Well, I'm looking forward to that handout. It sounds like it's going to have lots of good stuff. There's going to be a lot of information. There's so many things that I want to say, but it doesn't make sense to, to get across to you um, right. verbally that it, it makes so much more sense if we're looking at calculations for protein or, or, you know, different things with fat, you know, it, it's so much easier for you to see it than it is for you to hear it. And that way you also don't think that you have to, you know, take notes or memorize everything I'm saying. Right. Um, Cause we have MS and our memories are not exactly perfect. Right. We're easily distracted. <laughs> yes. That back to neurotransmitter balance, Brooke. So Anna, for the MS gymmers out there, when should they drink water? Before they start to exercise, after, during, all of the above. Oh, okay. All of the above. Um, I'm also giving, again, that information on the handout too, because it's going to go kind of with this timing of, of how soon you need to drink water prior, when you need to recover after you exercise, and how often you should be hydrating during exercise. And that rule of thumb is probably every 15 to 20 minutes, you should be sipping on water if you're actively exercising. Your body needs hydration, you're, especially if you're working up a sweat. You're going to be losing fluids. Cool. So Anna, I think that was the last of the five topics. Am I correct? Yes. So what I, what I, the, one of the main things that I think is important for everyone, and correct me if I'm wrong, but before you start anything, before you jump head on, head, because I know how I would be, I take a look at all this and I'd be like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Shouldn't I be getting blood work done first? It helps. Um, and working with someone that can have a bit of an oversight to point you in the right direction helps. With these five topics, um, the general guidelines should be enough to get you started, even up until you can get lab work. But it is, that's, this is the 101. This is your jumping off right. platform. This is not individualized for your own needs, but it should still point you in the right direction for everyone. Um, a fish oil supplement isn't something that is going to hurt you even without lab work, even though I will say I do like to see somebody as essential fatty acid balance, but the lab work can be complex um, and it can be expensive and not everybody's willing to take such a deep dive um, right off the bat. So these are recommendations that can help in that interim. Same with the magnesium glycinate. It's a supplement I definitely recommend for spasticity and I have used it for patients to help sleep, but there's going to be more information on the handout whether you can or shouldn't have that supplement and a dose, a safe dose to start at that I'm pretty confident is not going to cause any issues as long as you're not on the list of medications, simply because the research shows that, you know, over half of the United States is deficient in magnesium anyway. So, and again, taking that absorption digestion component, I feel safe and confident that it could help versus hurt and same with the protein powders. Ideally though, working with someone and getting what we call a micronutrient and nutrient panel done, that helps pinpoint how you, how your body is functioning, where your deficiencies lie, and what those deficiencies are then affecting, you know, which certain um, genetic susceptibilities also influence this. Some genetic susceptibilities mean you're low in B6 and B2 and not just B12. There's a lot to look at when we start to dissect MS, and we'll get there piece by piece. But for now, this is this is a jumping off platform. And then after we start making these changes, hopefully you'll start seeing some improvements. And that's when I'm going to come back and I'm going to challenge you to make a bigger jump. And then we can go through testing. What testing? Where do you look? How, how do I get the testing done? What testing is it? That That's going to be likely in a follow-up. Awesome. Awesome. 
maybe I'll have you back to the MS Gym podcast. <laughs> that would be wonderful. But if not, I will tell people that uh, I am going to start, what do I say? I am going to start providing this information and doing, um, and sending out emails and newsletters and stuff like that on my website too, that help give them this information um, just to be, you know, a resource and be a voice out there to help everyone sort through the noise of what to do and what not to do um, and what makes you unique with MS. And we are going to be providing links to all of Anna's information, um, link to the handout and all of that good stuff. But uh, Anna, as usual, I'm kind of blown away with everything, hanging on every word. I know it's some detailed stuff, but I know from our interviews, it gets much deeper than that. But this is definitely a good, this is something that people can take away and tomorrow start putting into their daily lives if they so choose to, even if it's just one piece of what you provided. So I can't thank you enough for your expertise. You are over the top. Love it. And can't thank you enough for for being part of this summit. It it really means a lot to us. It's my pleasure. And I hope some of this will help. Awesome. Thank you so much. For more information on the MS Gym, you can find them on Facebook, Instagram, or at themsgym.com. If you'd like to know what I've been up to lately, you can catch me at brookslick.com. We'll see you on the next episode.